and thank you for joining us on another week of Diffusion. We've got some great stories coming at you this week. We'll be talking about nuclear fusion and solving the world's energy problem. We'll also be poking the scientific stick at Hollywood, putting those big blockbusters under the microscope. But before we can get to all of that, let's take a look at this week's science news. Headlining this week's science news, carbon dioxide sequestration. Now, Chris, I believe you know something about this. Yeah, well, you might remember this uh, This came in the news, particularly down here in Australia, uh, a number of months ago now, where a whole bunch of people stepped forward and said, here's a way to solve all of our problems. All of the carbon emissions that are coming up, particularly from power stations, don't worry about them. We'll just bury them a long way underground. But there are a lot of people saying, this makes a lot of sense. You bury it a long way down there. It'll never get out. We'll all be fine. A couple of, uh, of scientists reported in the uh, the journal Geology this week that uh, they'd done a few experiments over in the US of burying large quantities of carbon dioxide gas, CO2, to see what would happen. And uh, they measured the amount of, uh, of different chemicals in the soil and in the, um, the, you know, the cylinders that this stuff was, was buried in. And they, they found that the, um, the carbon dioxide actually changed the acidity of its surroundings way down there under the earth, changed it basically to the acidity of vinegar, which is a fairly corrosive thing in yeah. large quantities. And so it's breaking down all the materials around it. Now, none of the carbon dioxide in these experiments escaped, so mm-hmm. that's okay. But they are concerned that over longer timescales than these experiments, which are really quite short in geological timescales, then you would break down the rock and the surrounding materials, and in fact, all of the carbon dioxide would, in fact, escape. So this is a big sort of, you know, kick to the kneecaps of the whole carbon geosequestration idea. Now, David, what's happening in medical news? Well, I don't know if you've ever looked at deer and thought, how do they manage with those big coat hanger things on their head? Fortunately, a team at the Centre for Biomedical Engineering at University College London did just that, and it gave them an idea for a new type of prosthetic limb. Um, Currently, the problem with artificial limbs, they have to be strapped or otherwise attached to the outside of the stump, so they cause blistering, they lead to pressure, all sorts of horrible things. Um, So what they've decided to do, uh, the team at UCL, is they're going to attach a titanium rod directly into the bone of the limb that needs replacing. So this is going through the skin into the bone itself? Yes which is exactly what a deer antler does. And the important thing here is the structure of the bone and the porosity of the bone so that the flesh can just grow into and around it with great long strands and anchor itself really firmly. Once the flesh has grown in, there's no risk of infection and the titanium rod can stick straight out of the end of the limb and you can then build a really strong prosthetic onto the end of it. And you you don't have all the problems of things being attached to the outside and so they're rubbing and you're getting all sorts of blistering and so on. Yes. That's really cool. This technique is known as intraosseous transcutaneous amputation prosthesis. What this means basically is if you've lost a limb or if you've lost a digit, they can simply give you an artificial one that will act physically very much like the one you've lost. Does that mean that you've got this this bit sticking out through your skin from the bone and you could conceivably like unplug one thing and plug another thing on? So you could have like interchangeable parts. Very that would wow. make Captain Gadget. Hook's job oh. so easy. Like, I so want one of these the things. And... Yeah, I think so. That's and a pen, great idea. blender, yeah. chainsaw. I mean, yeah. you know what? I anyway, like it. they reckon they're going to use these first of all for thumbs and forefingers, just for very small devices, but they reckon... Within five years, they could be in place for entire limbs. Well, just on this idea of regrowing things, um, a gentleman over in, I believe, the United States, everything happens in the States, um, 
has been in a minimally conscious state for 19 years. Oh, I he, heard about this guy yeah, and he's and woken up. He's woken up. Well, he woke up a few years ago, um, back in 2003. But what they've done is they've actually been looking at brain scans of uh, this gentleman, Terry Wallace, as well as another gentleman in a minimally conscious state, as well as healthy people. And what they think... Um, has happened is that the brain matter, so inside the white matter rather than the grey matter, it's actually been growing back. Now, a minimally conscious state, it's not like a coma. You're awake, but you can't you can't speak, you can't move, you can't express anything. But sounds the like brain's hell. still going. Yeah, yeah it sounds so you're, like hell. you're there, but you're not all you're not there. there. And you're not responding to what's going on around you. It's kind of but like... But this guy was in that for 19, 19 years. 19 years. And he's woken up and he's begun to speak again. Um, and they've been looking... Unfortunately, they don't have any scans of his brain just after... Because he had a motor vehicle accident which put him into this state. Unfortunately, they don't have any of his earliest, earlier scans. But the brain matter there and the white matter has grown back. And what's really unfortunate about not having those scans there now is they can't look at what rate all of this material has been regenerated. But that's really interesting because yeah. there's... there's, there's I, I certainly thought that the whole problem with brain damage was that it doesn't grow it, back. Th- yeah, that's that, that Whatever damage is there, that's what and, you got. And I think we, we used to believe too that any healing sort of happened really, really quickly rather than huh, over 19 Slow years. Mm. And um, finally in our science headlining news, well, the, while the rest of the world's been running around with the, with the World Cup, I believe science has also been looking at soccer. Well, I'm not sure what you do when you've got a day free, some time on your hands, but a a doctor, Stefan Trellenkamp, a German doctor, when he had some time free during the World Cup, decided that he would create the world's smallest soccer pitch. Well, this pitch uh, measures 380 by 500 nanometers wide. Nano, 10 to the minus 9. 10 to the minus 9. So we're talking, what's that, like a billionth billionth of a meter. Very, very small. Um, and he made this using electron beam, and you can only see it with an electron microscope. And I, I quite like his quote. He's he's very, very proud, he says. The only problem is that I really don't know what to do with it. I can't put it on show as no one can see it. I guess it'll just stay in my drawer for the time being. <laughs> that, in that's his your, drawer. That's your, uh, your tax dollar well spent there, yes, I think. contributing mm. to the human cause, really, isn't it? Are we convinced he's actually done this? He's not just claiming he's done this. <laughs> only very intelligent yeah. people can see it. And I've got lots of little men who run around on it, I swear. <laughs> like, you can see them on my machine. Now, last week on Diffusion, we talked a lot about the nuclear debate, which has been reignited in Australia recently. One form of nuclear energy we didn't have a chance to talk about, though, is the one responsible for more energy output in the universe than you can poke out with a stick. We're talking about fusion, the process behind our own sun's prodigious output, and the basic idea behind one of the world's biggest science experiments. Here's Chris Stewart reporting. Dr Matthew Hall is a physicist at the Australian National University and chair of the Australian ITER Forum, a collaboration of scientists and engineers from five Australian universities, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation and the Australian Institute for Nuclear Science and Engineering. The ITER Forum is arguing for Australia to get much more involved in the very latest, very ambitious experiment in fusion energy research, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. I asked Dr. Hall to explain the difference between nuclear fusion energy and its better-known cousin, nuclear fission. 
I guess fundamentally the difference between fission and fusion is that fission is the splintering of heavier nuclide into uh, lighter products. So in this case, you splinter uranium into lighter products, strontium and a whole bunch of uh, other radioactive isotopes. In the case of fusion, what you're doing is the reverse reaction, is that you're bringing uh, lighter isotopes together and forming a heavier uh, isotope. So in this case, uh, you would be looking at predominantly bringing isotopes of hydrogen together to form a helium nucleus. By doing this, uh, you produce an energetic neutron and a large amount of energy. This is the process that powers the sun, the sun and the stars. So it's, if you like, an ultimate form of, of harnessing solar energy. And of course, any time you've got a very large output of energy from any kind of reaction, you can then use that to drive turbines and make electricity. This is the idea behind fusion power. That's the fundamental concept, that's right, is that uh, uh, the reaction itself would produce a large amount of heat. You would then harness this heat by some heat interchange. The primary uh, heat to energy electricity conversion mechanism is by driving some form of turbine. Okay, so you're involved with a group of people in Australia who are trying to push along the idea of fusion power plants, and there's a very large number of people around the world who have a similar idea. Well, the ITER project is uh, the next step in the in fusion energy development, barring the International Space Station, the largest science project on the planet. And uh, what it aims to do is to explore the burning plasma regime. So if you can imagine, in order to initiate a fusion reaction, uh, you need to bring these ions together, positively charged ions together, very close. Uh, the sun does this due to gravity. We can't manipulate gravity on Earth. So instead, we achieve bringing these ions together by magnetic confinement, tying these ions along uh, magnetic field lines. The purpose of ITER is to be able to compress these field lines together uh, to a large enough degree to lift the temperature of the ions to ignition temperatures, and that means lifting the temperature of, of the plasma soup to of the order of 100 million degrees centigrade. So you're using magnetic fields to squeeze these atoms together very, very hard so That's that they'll, they'll overcome their natural repulsion and they'll fuse together. That's primarily the technology behind it. As you mentioned a second ago, this is a very big experiment. What are the big problems here? Why is this so hard? Well, it, it, it's basically because you're trying to tame a star. You're trying to reproduce the conditions uh, in the core of the sun. In fact, you're not only trying to reproduce them, you're trying to exceed them. You're trying to bring the core temperature up to 100 million degree, degrees centigrade, and you're trying to confine the reaction for long enough such, such that... Uh, the energy yield is sizable. At the root of it all, the problem is it's just that it's a very difficult thing to do. It, in many ways, it's been likened as more difficult than putting man on the moon. Tell us a little bit about the scale of this. When can we expect to see the results from the ITER project? Well, in terms of the scale of the project, nothing really has been undertaken of this magnitude before where it really is uh, an equal consortium. Uh, it's it's countries representing something like half of the population of the planet, is that That's right? That's right. That's exactly it. So in terms of, in terms of scale, uh, it's enormous. In terms of cost, uh, it's around about uh, Australian $10 billion to construct. It has stacks of difficult technology uh, issues associated with it, and in many ways, ITER is about bringing those technological uh, advances together and uh, demonstrate a proof of principle. And so what's the time scale of this project? Well, ITER itself will take around about 10 years to build. In terms of how long is it going to take before you get the first high-performance plasma shot, 
probably of the order of, from now, uh, 15 years or so. It's the last experimental stage before you would build a, a prototype uh, power plant. Okay, so playing devil's advocate just for a second then, $10 million, or $10 billion rather, is a hell of a lot of money to throw at something which may or may not work. And would it be better to spend that money on other forms of energy, renewable sources of energy? Well, I guess in the first instance, we have to recognise what is the scale of the problem. And the scale of the problem is uh, global climate change, and in many ways it's the very existence of modern civilization. The world needs to be doing everything it possibly can to look for solutions. Now, that doesn't mean just investing in fusion technology. That means investing across a whole suite of energy technologies, which includes all of the renewables. ITER is an expensive project, yes, but by by comparison to the world's energy budget, it's less than one-tenth of one percent. Any time that nuclear reactions and nuclear energy is raised in the, in the public, of course, many people raise concerns about the use of these technologies for evil and not for good. And we're talking nuclear prol- proliferation of, uh, of arms here. We're talking using the technology for building weapons. Um, how does fusion technology and fusion research uh, fit into, into that argument? Well, there's various different types of fusion research. The fusion research that we're talking about is magnetic confinement fusion, which is whereby, as I said, we're using these magnetic fields to bring the ions very close together and bring them to temperatures to which they'll fuse. Now, that technology itself is totally benign in the sense that it cannot categorically be used for weapon production. If you... uh, turn off the heating experiment, all that happens is that the ions start to move apart from each other, Uh, the temperature cools down. Um, In the worst case scenario, you might do a bit of damage to the experiment, but you're certainly not going to create any form of catastrophic event. And there is no way that you can use uh, any of the uh, processes to uh, aid and abet uh, weapon proliferation. So what about the concerns about radioactive waste then? Because this is a a nuclear reaction, there is some waste generated. Well, I mean, it is true to say that fusion does generate some waste. Using existing technology, you could bring that uh, reactor back to a greenfield site, back to background radiation levels within one person's lifetime, as opposed to uh, a thousand, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of years in the case of fission. That was Dr Matthew Hall from the Research School of Physical Sciences and Engineering at the Australian National University, talking with Chris Stewart about a very big science experiment indeed, ETA. Now you're listening to Diffusion, your favourite science program, whether you're listening to us in Australia or across the world. Now, for all of my friends who are out there listening, they will tell you that when I go to the movies or if I sit at home watching a DVD, I have to comment and deconstruct the entire film. Don't even get me started on when I go and see a science film because, yes, I sit there and and pick it apart. Mark West today has got a story for us about some of the science between some of this, uh, this century's biggest science Hollywood blockbusters. We've all watched films and thought, that's impossible or that's unbelievable. Sometimes movies take liberties with science, allowing things to happen that in real life are impossible, or at least unknown. Today we are going to have a look at three of my favourite science fiction films and see whether or not some of the astounding things that happen in them have any scientific basis. One of the most popular science fiction films of recent years is The Matrix, in which Keanu Reeves discovers that artificial intelligence has trapped humankind in a virtual world and is using it as a power source. There are so many interesting and baffling scientific 
and ethical questions raised in this film that there are thousands, probably millions, of internet pages and chat rooms devoted to the topic. One of the scientific problems with the film, though, is the notion that machines are using humans as a power source. Morpheus says to Neo that the human race is enslaved in a power station where it is used as a source of bioelectricity. This is, unfortunately, rubbish, as it violates the law of conservation of energy. This is because humans need to eat to stay alive, and the conservation of energy law states that the amount of energy that comes from the humans cannot be greater than what is taken in, making the power station ludicrously inefficient. Also, in Morpheus's speech to Neo, he states that the machines have discovered a new form of nuclear fusion, obviously their actual source of energy and not the humans. However, this in itself provides hope for those of you out there who believe that the Matrix universe might be real. Controlling the fusion reaction is a difficult process and requires computer control. One theory suggests that hooking up millions of human brains creates an outstanding parallel computing system that can act as an immense distributed processor for controlling the nuclear reactions. The movie Contact sees Dr. Ellie Arrow, played by Jodie Foster, searching the heavens for electromagnetic signs of extraterrestrial life using radio telescopes, eventually finding a signal and using that signal to build an immense machine that transports her, through a wormhole, to the Vega star system where she speaks with an alien and then comes home. The movie is based on the novel by Dr. Carl Sagan, an American astronomer, astrobiologist and highly successful science communicator. There are many people in the world today doing as Dr. Arrow did in the film and search the sky for signs of intelligent life. Where the movie takes a leap, however, is that in real life, we've yet to find any. You can sign up to SETI at home and donate some of your computing power to analysing signals that come from radio telescopes all around the world. Sagan wanted to make his novel as close to scientifically accurate as possible, obviously difficult to do when dealing with such mind-blowing topics so he contacted the world's foremost black hole expert, Kip Thorne of Caltech. Thorne and associates were able to postulate a theoretical setup for a transversible wormhole using exotic matter. To be stable, wormholes need lots of what's called negative energy. Quantum mechanics suggests that it exists, but we haven't found it yet, and we don't know whether the laws of quantum mechanics allow enough negative energy to be concentrated together to allow wormholes to exist. One possible location for wormholes is at the centre of black holes. Travelling through one of these might prove extremely difficult, however, since the wormhole would be so unstable that it would collapse as soon as a spaceship, or even a ray of light, entered it. This is because there would not be enough negative energy to hold it open. In Jurassic Park, Richard Attenborough and researchers find fossilised mosquitoes that had bitten living dinosaurs, Soon after, these insects were caught in oozing tree sap and fo fossilised into amber. The scientists extracted the dinosaur blood from the fossilised insects and used the DNA in the blood to recreate dinosaurs. But does amber old enough exist? Not from the Dominican Republic, where the sap in the film is from. The amber from this island is between 20 and 40 million years old, far too young for the last dinosaur, who existed 65 million years ago. There are, however... A number of sites around the world where amber old enough can be found. But even if it exists, can we extract DNA from an insect trapped inside? Unfortunately, it appears to be virtually impossible to extract sufficient DNA to recreate a whole dinosaur genome. Research has shown that the DNA of dead organisms begins to fragment very rapidly unless it has been preserved under unique conditions. If a piece of amber were found containing an insect full of dinosaur blood, 
the blood cells would have to be separated from the insect cells, and this is difficult in itself. Next, scientists could use a technique called polymerized chain reaction, PCR, to replicate the DNA enough times to work with it. But since DNA deteriorates over time, very little of the complete genome would be left. The genome of the dinosaur is made up of billions of nucleic acids, and we may only be able to string together two or three hundred of them, or less than one millionth of the genome. This gives us no clue as to the rest of the genome, or how it all goes together. But don't give up on the movie science yet. I'm interested in seeing how the new Spider-Man movie deals with Spider-Man's special new powers that he gets from the moon, or how the villains get their powers. I tell you what, I'm, I'm looking forward to any revelations that Spider-Man might be giving us, and I hope that you're not stuck sitting next to the Diffusion Science team when you see Spider-Man. And finally, we all have vices. Now, David, I believe you've got a story over there on smoking. Yes, a company in the US is testing an anti-smoking vaccine. Um, If you're trying to give up smoking and having trouble with your willpower, you can go and get a vaccine that'll last for about a month. And what it will do is reduce your enjoyment of smoking by producing antibodies that stick to nicotine molecules and stop them entering the brain. So this really is vaccine. I mean, we're, we're talking about antibodies that are going to go in and destroy the stuff that's causing nasties. Absolutely. Well, not wow. so much destroy them, but just stop them reaching your brain. Nice. So you light up a fag and you don't get any pleasure from it, which is obviously going to stop you feeling that you're going to do it again. <laughs> Why else would you do it? Yeah. That's so you cool. can go and get a one-month vaccine. At the end of this, if you still haven't given up smoking, you can go, we think, and get a booster shot. It's being tested in California now. It could be on the market in maybe a few years' time. So smoking, not big, not clever, and soon it won't be any fun either. Now, I don't know if you went out on a big bender last night, but new research suggests that drinking a cup of coffee could actually help prevent drinkers, big drinkers, from liver disease. I think this is very interesting, and I it actually works. It works if you have two cups of coffee, you double your chance of preventing oh, I like the cirrhosis this story. of the liver. <laughs> I and like then, this and one. And then if you have four, cha- uh, four cups of coffee, your chances are 80% more. So if you just hook yourself up to a coffee drip, you're laughing. You, completely, oh. completely. My lifestyle has just been justified. And, I'll go and drip the great the other thing arm. is, you go out, <laughs> you come home, you sleep, you wake up, you're hungover, you have your coffee. The interesting thing Perfect. is, well, it's not, and tea doesn't work, so it's not caffeine that's doing it. It's, it's something else that's in coffee that has the effect. Do we know what it is? Um, not yet. Not yet. But well, I'm get really, out there and do the research. I'm willing right. to, to be a test subject for a while. I'll be a guinea pig. What sort of vices that are going on in the world of science do you have over there, Chris? Well, there's a, a bit of research that's been done into the whole slippery slope argument about drugs. You know the one which says, well, if we were to legalise cannabis... That would mean that everyone who then went out and took this as a recreational drug would just go on to harder drugs and it would be the end of civilization and probably the universe as we know it. Um, well, some research has been done not with humans but with rats to see whether or not there is actually an effect here because, of course, one of the biggest confounding variables in all of this is maybe it's a social problem. In other words, if you do get into taking the lower-level drugs like arguably cannabis would be, then you might be hanging around with people who are taking the harder drugs, and that's why. And you're still on the training wheels of the world of drugs. That's right. And so it's a social problem. So to remove the social aspect, don't do experiments with human beings. Do it with rats and don't let them socialise. And so here's the experiment. You get a bunch of rats and you give half of them the um, the chemical in cannabis that, that gives you the nice, happy, high feelings, and the other half you don't. And then you put them all 
into cages where they can go and press a lever. That's the, the rat experiment, right? The rat learns to press the lever yes. and it gets something good. And in this case, it's heroin. Uh. And so as it turns out, all of these rats learn to press the little lever because they're all going, heroin, I'll have yeah. more of that. Thank you very much. But the ones who had had the cannabis first ended up being about one and a half times more likely to go on and press the, the lever and get, taking one and a half times as much of the heroin than the other rats. And so there seems to be some kind of neurophysiological link going on here. They think it might be that the, the chemicals in cannabis are predisposing the brain in some way to want more of this and they're getting it from the heroin. So whether that's that the brain is really interested in getting more of the, of the happy type chemicals or whether it needs more of those chemicals in order to get mm, the same get kind the same of high, high, they don't know. But it is an interesting effect that does give some credence to the whole slippery slope argument, which is a bit of a worry for all of those legalised marijuana campaigners out there. I know let's go All night long See you the band on the wall Yes, sadly, it's time to go, but you can catch us next week for another great instalment of Diffusion. Joining me this week in the studios was Chris Stewart, David Harcourt and Mark West. Today, Diffusion was produced by Chris Stewart in the plush studios of 2SER. We're sent across Australia by the Community Broadcasting Network and we're sent across the world on our podcasts, which you can find at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Jackie Pepper, and I expect to see you here next week for another great week on Diffusion. Yes, I'm a leader.